Chapter 2 Megapolitical Transformations in Historic Perspective In history, as in nature, birth and death are equally balanced. Johann Huizinga The Waning of the Modern World In our view, you are witnessing nothing less than the waning of the modern age. It is a development driven by a ruthless but hidden logic. More than we commonly understand, more than CNN and the newspapers tell us, the next millennium will no longer be modern. We say this not to imply that you face a savage or backward future, although that is possible, but to emphasize that the stage of history now opening will be qualitatively different from that into which you were born. Something new is coming. Just as farming societies differed in kind from hunting and gathering bands, and industrial societies differed radically from feudal or yeoman agricultural systems, so the new world to come will mark a radical departure from anything seen before. In the new millennium, economic and political life will no longer be organized on a gigantic scale under the domination of the nation-state as it was during the modern centuries. The civilization that brought you world war— the assembly line, social security, income tax, deodorant, and the toaster oven is dying. Deodorant and the toaster oven may survive. The others won't. Like an ancient and once mighty man, the nation-state has a future numbered in years and days, and no longer in centuries and decades. Governments have already lost much of their power to regulate and compel. The collapse of communism marked the end of a long cycle of five centuries during which magnitude of power overwhelmed efficiency in the organization of government. It was a time when the returns to violence were high and rising. They no longer are. A phase transition of world historic dimensions has already begun. Indeed, the future Gibbon, who chronicles the decline and fall of the once modern age in the next millennium, may declare that it had already ended by the time you listen to this book. Looking back, he may say, as we do, that it ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, or with the death of the Soviet Union in 1991. Either date could come to stand as a defining event in the evolution of civilization, the end of what we now know as the modern age. The fourth stage of human development is coming, and perhaps its least predictable feature is the new name under which it will be known. Call it postmodern, call it the cyber society, or the information age, or make up your own name. No one knows what conceptual glue will stick a nickname to the next phase of history. We do not even know that the 500-year stretch of history just ending will continue to be thought of as modern. If future historians know anything about word derivations, it will not be. A more descriptive title might be The Age of the State or The Age of Violence, but such a name would fall outside the temporal spectrum that currently defines the epochs of history. Modern, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, means pertaining to the present and recent times as distinguished from the remote past. In historical use commonly applied, in contradiction to ancient and medieval, to the times subsequent to the Middle Ages. Western people consciously thought of themselves as modern only when they came to understand that the medieval period was over. Before 1500, no one had ever thought of the feudal centuries as a middle period in Western civilization. 
The reason is obvious upon reflection. Before an age can reasonably be seen as sandwiched in the middle of two other historic epochs, it must have already come to an end. Those living during the feudal centuries could not have imagined themselves as living in a halfway house between antiquity and modern civilization until it dawned on them not just that the medieval period was over, but also that medieval civilization differed dramatically from that of the Dark Ages or antiquity. Human cultures have blind spots. We have no vocabulary to describe paradigm changes in the largest boundaries of life, especially those happening around us. Notwithstanding the many dramatic changes that have unfolded since the time of Moses, only a few heretics have bothered to think about how the transitions from one phase of civilization to another actually unfold. How are they triggered? What do they have in common? What patterns can help you tell when they begin and know when they are over? When will Great Britain or the United States come to an end? These are questions for which you would be hard-pressed to find conventional answers. The Taboo on Foresight To see outside an existing system is like being a stagehand trying to force a dialogue with a character in a play. It breaches a convention that helps keep the system functioning. Every social order incorporates among its key taboos the notion that people living in it should not think about how it will end and what rules may prevail in the new system that takes its place. Implicitly, whatever system exists is the last or the only system that will ever exist. Not that this is so baldly stated. Few who have ever read a history book would find such an assumption realistic if it was articulated. Nonetheless, that is the convention that rules the world. Every social system, however strongly or weakly it clings to power, pretends that its rules will never be superseded. They are the last word, or perhaps the only word. Primitives assume that theirs is the only possible way of organizing life. More economically complicated systems that incorporate a sense of history usually place themselves at its apex. Whether they are Chinese mandarins in the court of the emperor the Marxist nomenclatura in Stalin's Kremlin, or members of the House of Representatives in Washington, the powers that be either imagine no history at all or place themselves at the pinnacle of history, in a superior position compared to everyone who came before and the vanguard of anything to come. This is true for practical reasons. The more apparent it is that a system is nearing an end, the more reluctant people will be to adhere to its laws. Any social organization will therefore tend to discourage or play down analyses that anticipate its demise. This alone helps ensure that history's great transitions are seldom spotted as they happen. If you know nothing else about the future, you can rest assured that dramatic changes will be neither welcomed nor advertised by conventional thinkers. You cannot depend upon conventional information sources to give you an objective and timely warning about how the world is changing and why. If you wish to understand the great transition now underway, you have little choice but to figure it out for yourself. Beyond the Obvious This means looking beyond the obvious. The record shows that even transitions that are undeniably real in retrospect may not be acknowledged for decades or even centuries after they happen. 
Consider the fall of Rome. It was probably the most important historic development in the first millennium of the Christian era. Yet, long after Rome's demise, the fiction that it survived was held out to public view, like Lenin's embalmed corpse. No one who depended upon the pretenses of officials for his understanding of the news would have learned that Rome had fallen until long after that information ceased to matter. The reason was not merely the inadequacy of communications in the ancient world. The outcome would have been much the same had CNN miraculously been in business, running its videotape in September 476. That is when the last Roman emperor in the West, Romulus Augustulus, was captured in Ravenna and forcibly retired to a villa in Campania on a pension. Even if Wolf Blitzer had been there with minicams recording the news in 476, it is unlikely that he or anyone else would have dared to characterize those events as marking the end of the Roman Empire. That, of course, is exactly what latter historians said happened. CNN editors probably would not have approved a headline story saying, Rome fell this evening. The powers that be denied that Rome had fallen. Peddlers of news seldom are partisans of controversy in ways that would undermine their own profits. They may be partisan. They may even be outrageously so. But they seldom report conclusions that would convince subscribers to cancel their subscriptions and head for the hills, which is why few would have reported the fall of Rome even if it had been technologically possible. Experts would have come forth to say that it was ridiculous to speak of Rome falling. To have said otherwise would have been bad for business, and perhaps bad for the health of those doing the reporting. The powers in late 5th century Rome were barbarians, and they denied that Rome had fallen. But it was not merely a case of authorities saying, don't report this or we will kill you. Part of the problem was that Rome was already so degenerate by the later decades of the 5th century that its fall genuinely eluded the notice of most people who lived through it, in fact, it was a generation later before Count Marcellinus first suggested that the Western Roman Empire perished with this Augustulus. Many more decades passed, perhaps centuries, before there was a common acknowledgement that the Roman Empire in the West no longer existed. Certainly Charlemagne believed that he was a legitimate Roman emperor in the year 800, the point is not that Charlemagne and all who thought in conventional terms about the Roman Empire after 476 were fools. To the contrary, the characterization of social developments is frequently ambiguous. When the power of predominant institutions is brought into the bargain to reinforce a convenient conclusion, even one based largely on pretense, only someone of strong character and strong opinions would dare contradict it. If you try to put yourself in the position of a Roman of the late 5th century, it is easy to imagine how tempting it would have been to conclude that nothing had changed. That certainly was the optimistic conclusion. To have thought otherwise might have been frightening. And why come to a frightening conclusion when a reassuring one was at hand? After all, a case could have been made that business would continue as usual. It had in the past— the Roman army, and particularly the frontier garrisons, had been barbarized for centuries. By the third century, it had become regular practice for the army to proclaim a new emperor. By the fourth century, even officers were Germanized and frequently illiterate. 
There had been many violent overthrows of emperors before Romulus Augustulus was removed from the throne. His departure might have seemed no different to his contemporaries than many other upheavals in a chaotic time. And he was sent packing with a pension. The very fact that he received a pension, even for a brief period before he was murdered, was a reassurance that the system survived. To an optimist, Odoacer, who deposed Romulus Augustulus, reunified rather than destroyed the empire. A son of Attila's sidekick, Edison, Odoacer was a clever man. He did not proclaim himself emperor. Instead, he convened the Senate and prevailed upon its two suggestible members that they offer the emperorship, and thus sovereignty, over the whole empire to Zeno, the eastern emperor in faraway Byzantium. Odoacer was merely to be Zeno's patricius to govern Italy. As Will Durant wrote in The Story of Civilization, these changes did not appear to be the fall of Rome, but merely negligible shifts on the surface of the national scene. When Rome fell, Odoacer said that Rome endured. He, along with almost everyone else, was keen to pretend that nothing had changed. They knew that the glory that was Rome was far better than the barbarism that was taking its place. Even the barbarians thought so. As C.W. Previt Orton wrote in the shorter Cambridge Medieval History, the end of the 5th century, when the emperors had been replaced by barbaric German kings, was a time of persistent make-believe. Persistent make-believe This make-believe involved the preservation of the facade of the old system, even as its essence was deformed by barbarism. The old forms of government remained the same when the last emperor was replaced by a barbarian lieutenant. The Senate still met. The Praetorian Prefecture and other high offices continued and were held by eminent Romans. Consuls were still nominated for a year. The Roman civil administration survived intact. Indeed, in some ways, it remained intact until the birth of feudalism at the end of the 10th century. On public occasions, the old imperial insignia was still employed. Christianity was still the state religion. The barbarians still pretended to owe fealty to the eastern emperor in Constantinople and to the traditions of Roman law. In fact, in Durant's words, in the West, the great empire was no more. So what? The faraway example of the fall of Rome is relevant for a number of reasons as you contemplate conditions in the world today. Most books about the future are really books about the present. We have sought to remedy that defect by making this book about the future, first of all, a book about the past. We think that you are likely to draw a better perspective about what the future has in store if we illustrate important megapolitical points about the logic of violence with real examples from the past. History is an amazing teacher. The stories it has to tell are more interesting than any we could make up, and many of the more interesting relate to the fall of Rome. They document important lessons that could be relevant to your future in the information age. First of all, the fall of Rome is one of history's more vivid examples of what happened in a major transition when the scale of government was collapsing. The transitions of the year 1000 also involved the collapse of central authority and did so in a way that increased the complexity and scope of economic activity. 
The gunpowder revolution at the end of the 15th century involved major changes in institutions that tended to raise rather than shrink the scale of governance. Today, for the first time in a thousand years, megapolitical conditions in the West are undermining and destroying governments, corporate conglomerates, labor unions, and many other institutions that operate on a large scale. Of course, the collapse in the scale of governance at the end of the Roman Empire had very different causes from those prevailing now at the advent of the information age. Part of the reason that Rome fell is simply that it had expanded beyond the scale at which the economies of violence could be maintained. The cost of garrisoning the empire's far-flung borders exceeded the economic advantages that an ancient agricultural economy could support. The burden of taxation and regulation required to finance the military effort rose to exceed the carrying capacity of the economy. Corruption became endemic. A large part of the effort of military commanders, as historian Ramsay McMullen has documented, was devoted to pursuit of illicit profits of their command. This they pursued by shaking down the population, what the 4th century observer Synesius described as the peacetime war one almost worse than the Barbarian War, and arising from the military's indiscipline and the officers' greed. Another important contributing factor to Rome's collapse was a demographic deficit caused by the Antonine Plagues. The collapse of the Roman population in many areas obviously contributed to economic and military weakness. Nothing of that kind has happened today, at least not yet. Taking a longer view, perhaps the scourge of new plagues will compound the challenges of technological devolution in the new millennium. The unprecedented bulge in human population in the 20th century creates a tempting target for rapidly mutating microparasites. Fears about the Ebola virus, or something like it, invading metropolitan populations may be well-founded, but this is not the place to consider the coevolution of humans and diseases. As interesting a topic as that is, our argument at this juncture is not about why Rome fell, or even about whether the world today is vulnerable to some of the same influences that contributed to Roman decline. It is about something different. Namely, the way that history's great transformations are perceived, or, rather, misperceived as they happen. People are always and everywhere, to some degree, conservative, with a small c. That implies a reluctance to think in terms of dissolving venerable social conventions, overturning the accepted institutions, and defying the laws and values from which they drew their bearings. Few are inclined to imagine that apparently minor changes in climate or technology or some other variable can somehow be responsible for severing connections to the world of their fathers. The Romans were reluctant to acknowledge the changes unfolding around them. So are we. Yet, recognize it or not, we are living through a change of historical season, a transformation in the way people organize their livelihoods and defend themselves that is so far-reaching that it will inevitably transform the whole of society. The change will be so profound, in fact, that to understand it will require taking almost nothing for granted. You will be invited, at almost every turn, to believe that the coming information societies will be very like the industrial society you grew up in. We doubt it. Microprocessing will dissolve the mortar in the bricks. 
it will so profoundly alter the logic of violence that it will inevitably change the way people organize their livelihoods and defend themselves. Yet the tendency will be to downplay the inevitability of these changes, or to argue about their desirability, as if it were within the fiat of industrial institutions to determine how history evolves. The Grand Illusion Authors who are in many ways better informed than we are will nevertheless lead you astray in thinking about the future because they are far too superficial in examining how societies work. For example, David Klein and Daniel Burstein have written a well-researched volume entitled Road Warriors, Dreams and Nightmares Along the Information Highway. It is full of admirable detail. But much of this detail is marshaled in arguing an illusion, the idea that citizens can act together, consciously, to shape the spontaneous economic and natural processes going on around them. Although it may not be obvious, this is equivalent to saying that feudalism might have survived if everyone had rededicated himself to chivalry. No one in a court of the late 15th century would have objected to such a sentiment. Indeed, it would have been heresy to do so. But it also would have been entirely misleading, an example of the snake trying to fit the future into its old skin. The basic causes of change are precisely those that are not subject to conscious control. They are the factors that alter the conditions under which violence pays. Indeed, they are so remote from any obvious means of manipulation that they are not even subjects of political maneuvering in a world saturated with politics. No one ever marched in a demonstration shouting, Increase scale economies in the production process. No banner has ever demanded, Invent a weapon system that increases the importance of the infantry. No candidate ever promised to alter the balance between efficiency and magnitude in protection against violence. Such slogans would be ridiculous, precisely because their goals are beyond the capacity of anyone to consciously affect. Yet, as we will explore, these variables determine how the world works to a far greater degree than any political platform. If you think about it carefully, it should be obvious that important transitions in history seldom are driven primarily by human wishes. They do not happen because people get fed up with one way of life and suddenly prefer another. A moment's reflection suggests why. If what people think and desire were the only determinants of what happens, then all the abrupt changes in history would have to be explained by wild mood swings unconnected to any change in the actual conditions of life. In fact, this never happens. Only in cases of medical problems affecting a few people do we see arbitrary fluctuations in mood that appear entirely divorced from any objective cause. As a rule, Large numbers of people do not suddenly and all at once decide to abandon their way of life simply because they find it amusing to do so. No forager ever said, I'm tired of living in prehistoric times. I would prefer the life of a peasant in a farming village. Any decisive swing in patterns of behavior and values is invariably a response to an actual change in the conditions of life. In this sense, at least, people are always realistic. If their views do change abruptly, it probably indicates that they have been confronted by some departure from familiar conditions, an invasion, a plague, 
a sudden climatic shift, or a technological revolution that alters their livelihoods or their ability to defend themselves. Far from being the product of human desire, decisive historic changes, more often than not, confound the wish of most people for stability. When change occurs, it typically causes widespread disorientation, especially among those who lose income or social status. You will look in vain at public opinion polls or other measures of mood for an understanding of how the coming megapolitical transition is likely to unfold. Life Without Foresight If we fail to perceive the great transition going on around us, it is partly because we do not desire to see. Our foraging forebears may have been just as obdurate, but they had a better excuse. No one, 10,000 years ago, could have foreseen the consequences of the agricultural revolution. Indeed, no one could have foreseen much of anything beyond where to find the next meal. When farming began, there was no record of past events from which to draw perspective on the future. There was not even a Western sense of time divided into orderly units, like seconds, minutes, hours, days, and so on, to measure out the years. Foragers lived in the eternal present, without calendars, and, indeed, without written records at all. They had no science, and no other intellectual apparatus for understanding cause and effect beyond their own intuitions. When it came to looking ahead, our primeval ancestors were blind. To cite the biblical metaphor, they had not yet eaten of the fruit of knowledge. Learning from the Past Luckily, we have a better vantage point. The past 500 generations have given us analytic capabilities that our forebears lacked. Science and mathematics have helped unlock many of nature's secrets, giving us an understanding of cause and effect that approaches the magical when compared to that of the early foragers. Computational algorithms developed as a result of high-speed computers have shed new insights on the workings of complex, dynamic systems like the human economy. The painstaking development of political economy itself, although it falls well short of perfection, has honed understanding of the factors informing human action. Important among these is the recognition that people at all times and places tend to respond to incentives. Not always as mechanically as economists imagine, but they do respond. Costs and rewards matter. Changes in external conditions that raise the rewards or lower the costs of certain behavior will lead to more of that behavior, other things being equal. Incentives matter. The fact that people tend to respond to costs and rewards is an essential element of forecasting. You can say with a high degree of confidence that if you drop a $100 bill on the street, someone will soon pick it up whether you are in New York, Mexico City, or Moscow. This is not as trivial as it seems. It shows why the clever people who say that forecasting is impossible are wrong. Any forecast that accurately anticipates the impact of incentives on behavior is likely to be broadly correct. And the greater the anticipated change in costs and rewards, the less trivial the implied forecast is likely to be. The most far-reaching forecasts of all are likely to arise from recognizing the implications of shifting megapolitical variables. 
violence is the ultimate boundary force on behavior. Thus, if you can understand how the logic of violence will change, you can usefully predict where people will be dropping or picking up the equivalent of $100 bills in the future. We do not mean by this that you can know the unknowable. We cannot tell you how to forecast winning lottery numbers or any truly random event. We have no way of knowing when or whether a terrorist will detonate an atomic blast in Manhattan or if an asteroid will strike Saudi Arabia. We cannot predict the coming of a new ice age, a sudden volcanic eruption, or the emergence of a new disease. The number of unknowable events that could alter the course of history is large. But knowing the unknowable is very different from drawing out the implications of what is already known. If you see a flash of lightning far away, you can forecast with a high degree of confidence that a thunderclap is due. Forecasting the consequences of megapolitical transitions involves much longer time frames and less certain connections, but it is a similar kind of exercise. Megapolitical catalysts for change usually appear well before their consequences manifest themselves. It took 5,000 years for the full implications of the agricultural revolution to come to the surface. The transition from an agricultural society to an industrial society based on manufacturing and chemical power unfolded more quickly. It took centuries. The transition to the information society will happen more rapidly still, probably within a lifetime. Yet, even allowing for the foreshortening of history, you can expect decades to pass before the full megapolitical impact of existing information technology is realized. Major and Minor Megapolitical Transitions This chapter analyzes some of the common features of megapolitical transitions. In following chapters, we look more closely at the agricultural revolution and the transition from farm to factory, the second of the previous great phase changes. Within the agricultural stage of civilization, there were many minor megapolitical transitions, such as the fall of Rome and the feudal revolution of the year 1000. These marked the waxing and waning of the power equation as governments rose and fell, and the spoils of farming passed from one set of hands to another. The owners of sprawling estates under the Roman Empire, yeoman farmers in the European Dark Ages, and the lords and serfs of the feudal period all ate grain from the same fields. They lived under very different governments because of the cumulative impact of different technologies, fluctuations in climate, and the disruptive influences of disease. Our purpose is not to thoroughly explain all of these changes. We do not pretend to do so, although we have sketched out some illustrations of the way that changing megapolitical variables have altered the way that power was exercised in the past. Governments have grown and shrunk as megapolitical fluctuations have lowered and raised the costs of projecting power. Here are some summary points that you should keep in mind as you seek to understand the information revolution. 1. A shift in the megapolitical foundations of power normally unfolds far in advance of the actual revolutions in the use of power. Two. Incomes are usually falling when a major transition begins, 
often because a society has rendered itself crisis-prone by marginalizing resources due to population pressures. 3. Seeing outside of a system is usually taboo. People are frequently blind to the logic of violence in the existing society. Therefore, they are almost always blind to changes in that logic, latent or overt. Megapolitical transitions are seldom recognized before they happen. 4. Major transitions always involve a cultural revolution and usually entail clashes between adherents of the old and new values. 5. Megapolitical transitions are never popular because they antiquate painstakingly acquired intellectual capital and confound established moral imperatives. They are not undertaken by popular demand, but in response to changes in the external conditions that alter the logic of violence in the local setting. 6. Transitions to new ways of organizing livelihoods or new types of government are initially confined to those areas where the megapolitical catalysts are at work. 7. With the possible exception of the early stages of farming, past transitions have always involved periods of social chaos and heightened violence due to disorientation and breakdown of the old system. 8. Corruption, moral decline, and inefficiency appear to be signal features of the final stages of a system. 9. The growing importance of technology in shaping the logic of violence has led to an acceleration of history, leaving each successive transition with less adaptive time than ever before. History speeds up. With events unfolding many times faster than during previous transformations, early understanding of how the world will change could turn out to be far more useful to you than it would have been to your ancestors at an equivalent juncture in the past. Even if the first farmers had miraculously understood the full megapolitical implications of tilling the earth, this information would have been practically useless because thousands of years were to pass before the transition to the new phase of society was complete. Not so today. History has sped up. Forecasts that correctly anticipate the megapolitical implications of new technology are likely to be far more useful today. If we can develop the implications of the current transition to the information society to the same extent that someone with current knowledge could have grasped the implications of past transitions to farm and factory, that information should be many times more valuable now. Put simply, the action horizon for megapolitical forecasts has shrunk to its most useful range within the span of a single lifetime. Looking back over the centuries, or even if looking only at the present, we can clearly observe that many men have made their living, often a very good living, from their special skill in applying weapons of violence, and that their activities have had a very large part in determining what uses were made of scarce resources. Frederick C. Lane Our study of megapolitics is an attempt to do just that, to draw out the implications of the changing factors that alter the boundaries where violence is exercised. These megapolitical factors largely determine when and where violence pays, 
They also help inform the market distribution of income. As economic historian Frederick Lane so clearly put it, how violence is organized and controlled plays a large role in determining what uses are made of scarce resources. A Crash Course in Megapolitics The concept of megapolitics is a powerful one. It helps illuminate some of the major mysteries of history, how governments rise and fall and what types of institutions they become, the timing and outcome of wars, patterns of economic prosperity and decline. By raising or lowering the costs and rewards of projecting power, megapolitics governs the ability of people to impose their will on others. This has been true from the earliest human societies onward. It still is. We explored many of the important hidden megapolitical factors that determine the evolution of history in Blood in the Streets and The Great Reckoning. The key to unlocking the implications of megapolitical change is understanding the factors that precipitate revolutions in the use of violence. These variables can be somewhat arbitrarily grouped into four categories. Topography, climate, microbes, and technology. 1. Topography is a crucial factor, as evidenced by the fact that control of violence on the open seas has never been monopolized as it has on land. No government's laws have ever exclusively applied there. This is a matter of the utmost importance in understanding how the organization of violence and protection will evolve as the economy migrates into cyberspace. Topography, in conjunction with climate, had a major role to play in early history. The first states emerged on floodplains, surrounded by desert, such as in Mesopotamia and Egypt, where water for irrigation was plentiful, but surrounding regions were too dry to support yeoman farming. Under such conditions, individual farmers faced a very high cost for failing to cooperate in maintaining the political structure. Without irrigation, which could be provided only on a large scale, crops would not grow. No crops meant starvation. The conditions that placed those who controlled the water in a desert in a position of strength made for despotic and rich government. As we analyzed in The Great Reckoning, topographic conditions also played a major role in the prosperity of Yemen farmers in ancient Greece, enabling that region to become the cradle of Western democracy. Given the primitive transportation conditions prevailing in the Mediterranean region 3,000 years ago, it was all but impossible for persons living more than a few miles from the sea to compete in the production of high-value crops of the ancient world, olives and grapes. If the oil and the wine had to be transported any distance over land, the portage costs were so great that they could not be sold at a profit. The elaborate shoreline of the Greek littoral meant that most areas of Greece were no more than 20 miles from the sea. This gave a decisive advantage to Greek farmers over their potential competitors in landlocked areas. Because of this advantage in trading high-value products, Greek farmers earned high incomes from control of only small parcels of land. These high incomes enabled them to purchase costly armor. The famous hoplites of ancient Greece were farmers or landlords who armed themselves at their own expense. 
Both well-armed and well-motivated, the Greek hoplites were militarily formidable and could not be ignored. Topographic conditions were the foundation of Greek democracy, just as those of a different kind gave rise to the oriental despotisms of Egypt and elsewhere. 2. Climate also helps set the boundaries within which brute force can be exercised. A climatic change was the catalyst for the first major transition from foraging to farming. The end of the last ice age, about 13,000 years ago, led to a radical alteration in vegetation. Beginning in the Near East, where the ice age retreated first, a gradual rise in temperature and rainfall spread forests into areas that had previously been grasslands. In particular, the rapid spread of beech forests seriously curtailed the human diet. As Susan Alling Gregg put it in Foragers and Farmers, the establishment of beech forests must have had serious consequences for local human, plant, and animal populations. The canopy of an oak forest is relatively open and allows large amounts of sunlight to reach the forest floor. An exuberant undergrowth of mixed shrubs, forbs, and grasses develops, and the diversity of plants supports a variety of wildlife. In contrast, the canopy of a beech forest is closed, and the forest floor is heavily shaded. Other than a flush of spring annuals prior to the emergence of the leaves, only shade-tolerant sedges, ferns, and a few grasses are found. Over time, dense forests encroached on the open plains, spreading throughout Europe into the eastern steppes. The forests reduced the grazing area available to support large animals, making it increasingly difficult for the population of human foragers to support themselves. The population of hunter-gatherers had swollen too greatly during the Ice Age prosperity to support itself on the dwindling herds of large mammals, many species of which were hunted to extinction. The transition to agriculture was not a choice of preference, but an improvisation adopted under duress to make up for shortfalls in the diet. Foraging continued to predominate in those areas further north, where the warming trend had not adversely affected the habitats of large mammals, and in tropical rainforests, where the global warming trend did not have the perverse effect of reducing food supplies. Since the advent of farming, it has been far more common for changes to be precipitated by the cooling rather than the warming of the climate. A modest understanding of the dynamics of climatic change in past societies could well prove useful in the event that climates continue to fluctuate. If you know that a drop of one degree centigrade on average reduces the growing season by three to four weeks and shaves 500 feet off the maximum elevation at which crops can be grown, then you know something about the boundary conditions that will confine people's action in the future. You can use this knowledge to forecast changes in everything from grain prices to land values. You may even be able to draw informed conclusions about the likely impact of falling temperatures on real incomes and political stability. In the past, governments have been overthrown when crop failures extending over several years raised food prices and shrank disposable incomes. For example, it is no coincidence that the 17th century, the coldest in the modern period, was also a period of revolution worldwide. 
a hidden megapolitical cause of this unhappiness, was sharply colder weather. It was so cold, in fact, that wine froze on the Sun King's table at Versailles. Shortened growing seasons produced crop failures and undermined real income. Because of the colder weather, prosperity began to wind down into a long global depression that began around 1620. It proved drastically destabilizing. The economic crisis of the 17th century led to the world being overwhelmed by rebellions, many clustering in 1648, exactly 200 years before another and more famous cycle of rebellions. Between 1640 and 1650, there were rebellions in Ireland, Scotland, England, Portugal, Catalonia, France, Moscow, Naples, Sicily, Brazil, Bohemia, Ukraine, Austria, Poland, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Turkey. Even China and Japan were swept with unrest. It may also be no coincidence that mercantilism predominated in the 17th century during a period of shrinking trade. Economic closure was perhaps most pronounced at the end of the century, when a terrible famine occurred. By the 18th century, especially after 1750, warmer temperatures and higher crop yields had begun to raise real incomes in Western Europe sufficiently to expand demand for manufactured goods. More free market policies were adopted. This led to a self-reinforcing burst of economic growth as industry expanded to a larger scale in what is commonly described as the Industrial Revolution. The growing importance of technology and manufactured output reduced the impact of the weather on economic cycles. Even today, however, you should not underestimate the impact of suddenly colder weather in lowering real incomes, even in wealthy regions such as North America. There is a strong tendency for societies to render themselves crisis-prone when the existing configuration of institutions has exhausted its potential. In the past, this tendency has often been manifested by population increases that stretched the carrying capacity of land to the limit. This happened both before the transition of the year 1000 and again at the end of the 15th century. The plunge in real income, caused by crop failures and lower yields, played a significant role in both instances in destroying the predominant institutions. Today, the marginalization is manifested in the consumer credit markets. If sharply colder weather reduced crop yields and lowered disposable incomes, this would lead to debt default as well as tax rebellions. If the past is a guide, both economic closure and political instability could result. 3. Microbes convey power to harm or immunity from harm in ways that have often determined how power was exercised. This was certainly the case in the European conquest of the New World, as we explored in The Great Reckoning. European settlers, arriving from settled agricultural societies riddled with disease, brought with them relative immunity from childhood infections like measles. The Indians they encountered lived largely in thinly populated foraging bands. They possessed no such immunity and were decimated. Often, the greatest mortality occurred before white people even arrived, as Indians who first encountered Europeans on the coasts traveled inland with infections. There are also microbiological barriers to the exercise of power. 
In Blood in the Streets, we discussed the role that potent strains of malaria served in making tropical Africa impervious to invasion by white men for many centuries. Before the discovery of quinine in the mid-19th century, white armies could not survive in malarial regions, however superior their weapons might have been. The interaction between humans and microbes has also produced important demographic effects that altered the costs and rewards of violence. When fluctuations in mortality are high due to epidemic disease, famine, or other causes, the relative risk of mortality in warfare falls. The declining frequency of eruptions in death rates from the 16th century onward helps explain smaller family size and, ultimately, the far lower tolerance of sudden death in war today as compared to the past. This has had the effect of lowering the tolerance for imperialism and raising the costs of projecting power in societies with low birth rates. Contemporary societies, comprising small families, tend to find even small numbers of battle deaths intolerable. By contrast, early modern societies were much more tolerant of the mortality cost associated with imperialism. Before this century, most parents gave birth to many children, some of whom were expected to die randomly and suddenly from disease. In an era when early death was commonplace, would-be soldiers and their families faced the dangers of the battlefield with less resistance. Machinery is aggressive. The weaver becomes a web. The machinist a machine. If you do not use tools, they use you. Emerson 4. Technology has played by far the largest role in determining the costs and rewards of projecting power during the modern centuries. The argument of this book presumes it will continue to do so. Technology has several crucial dimensions. A. Balance between offense and defense. The balance between the offense and the defense implied by prevailing weapons technology helps determine the scale of political organization. When offensive capabilities are rising, the ability to project power at a distance predominates, jurisdictions tend to consolidate, and governments form on a larger scale. At other times, like now, defensive capabilities are rising. This makes it more costly to project power outside of core areas. Jurisdictions tend to devolve, and big governments break down into smaller ones. B. Equality and the Predominance of the Infantry A key feature determining the degree of equality among citizens is the nature of weapons technology. Weapons that are relatively cheap can be employed by non-professionals and enhance the military importance of infantry tend to equalize power. When Thomas Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, he was saying something that was much more true than a similar statement would have seemed centuries earlier. A farmer with his hunting rifle was not only as well-armed as the typical British soldier with his brown bess, he was better armed. The farmer with the rifle could shoot at the soldier from a greater distance and with greater accuracy than the soldier could return fire. This was a distinctly different circumstance from the Middle Ages, when a farmer with a pitchfork, he could not have afforded more, could scarcely have hoped to stand against a heavily armed knight on horseback. 
No one was writing in 1276 that all men are created equal. At that time, in the most manifestly important sense, men were not equal. A single knight exercised far more brute force than dozens of peasants put together. C. Advantages and Disadvantages of Scale in Violence Another variable that helps determine whether there are a few large governments or many small ones is the scale of organization required to deploy the prevailing weapons. When there are increasing returns to violence, it is more rewarding to operate governments at a large scale. Therefore, governments tend to get bigger. When a small group can command effective means of resisting an assault by a large group, which was the case during the Middle Ages, sovereignty tends to fragment. Small, independent authorities exercise many of the functions of government. As we explore in a latter chapter, we believe that the information age will bring the dawn of cyber-soldiers, who will be heralds of devolution. Cyber-soldiers could be deployed not merely by nation-states, but by very small organizations, and even by individuals. Wars of the next millennium will include some almost bloodless battles fought with computers. D. Economies of Scale in Production Another important factor that weighs in the balance in determining whether ultimate power is exercised locally or from a distance is the scale of the predominant enterprises in which people gain their livelihoods. When crucial enterprises can function optimally only when they are organized on a large scale in an encompassing trading area, governments that expand to provide such a setting for enterprises under their protection may rake off enough additional wealth to pay the costs of maintaining a large political system. Under such conditions, the entire world economy usually functions more effectively where one supreme world power dominates all others, as the British Empire did in the 19th century. But sometimes, megapolitical variables combine to produce falling economies of scale. If the economic benefits of maintaining a large trading area dwindle, Larger governments that previously prospered from exploiting the benefits of encompassing trading areas may begin to break apart, even if the balance of weaponry between offense and defense otherwise remains much as it had been. E. Dispersal of Technology Still another factor that contributes to the power equation is the degree of dispersal of key technologies. When weapons or tools of production can be effectively hoarded or monopolized, they tend to centralize power. Even technologies that are essentially defensive in character, like the machine gun, proved to be potent offensive weapons that contributed to a rising scale of governance during the period when they were not widely dispersed. When the European powers enjoyed a monopoly on machine guns late in the 19th century, they were able to use those weapons against peoples at the periphery to dramatically expand colonial empires. Later, in the 20th century, when machine guns became widely available, especially in the wake of World War II, they were deployed to help destroy the power of empires. Other things being equal, the more widely dispersed key technologies are, the more widely dispersed power will tend to be, and the smaller the optimum scale of government. The Speed of Megapolitical Change 
While technology is by far the most important factor today, and apparently growing more so, all four major megapolitical factors have played a role in determining the scale at which power could be exercised in the past. Together, these factors determine whether the returns to violence continue to rise as violence is employed on a larger scale. This determines the importance of magnitude of firepower versus efficiency in employing resources. It also strongly influences the market distribution of income. The question is, what role will they command in the future? A key to estimating an answer lies in recognizing that these megapolitical variables mutate at dramatically different speeds. Topography has been almost fixed through the whole of recorded history, except for minor local effects involving the silting of harbors, landfills, or erosion. The topography of the earth is almost the same today as it was when Adam and Eve straggled out of Eden, and it is likely to remain so until another ice age recarves the landscapes of continents or some other drastic event disturbs the surface of the earth. At a more profound scale, geological ages seem to shift, perhaps in response to large meteorite strikes, over a period of 10 to 40 million years. Someday, there may again be geological upheavals that will alter significantly the topography of our planet. If that happens, you can safely assume that both the baseball and cricket seasons will be canceled. Climate fluctuates much more actively than topography. In the last million years, climatic change has been responsible for most of the known variation in the features of the Earth's surface. During ice ages, glaciers gouged new valleys, altered the course of rivers, severed islands from continents, or joined them together by lowering the sea level. Fluctuations in climate have played a significant role in history, first in precipitating the agricultural revolution after the close of the last ice age, and later in destabilizing regimes during periods of colder temperatures and drought. Lately, there have been concerns over the possible impact of global warming. These concerns cannot be dismissed out of hand, Yet, taking a longer perspective, the more likely risk appears to be a shift toward a colder, not a warmer, climate. Study of temperature fluctuations based upon analysis of oxygen isotopes in core samples taken from the ocean floor show that the current period is the second warmest in more than two million years. If temperatures were to turn colder, as they did in the 17th century, that might prove megapolitically destabilizing. Current alarms about global warming may in that sense be reassuring. To the extent that they are true, that assures that temperatures will continue to fluctuate within the abnormally warm and relatively benign range experienced for the past three centuries. The rate of change in the influence of microbes on the exercise of power is more of a puzzle. Microbes can mutate very rapidly. This is especially true of viruses. The common cold, for example, mutates in an almost kaleidoscopic way. Yet, although these mutations proceed apace, their impact in shifting the boundaries where power is exercised have been far less abrupt than technological change. Why? Part of the reason is that the normal balance of nature tends to make it beneficial for microbes to infect, but not destroy host populations. 
virulent infections that kill their hosts too readily tend to eradicate themselves in the process. The survival of microparasites depends upon their not being too rapidly or uniformly fatal to the hosts they invade. That is not to say, of course, that there cannot be deadly eruptions of disease that alter the balance of power. Such episodes have figured prominently in history. The Black Death wiped out large fractions of the population of Eurasia and dealt a crushing blow to the 14th century version of the international economy. What Might Have Been History can be understood in terms of what might have been as well as what was. We know of no reason that microparasites could not have continued to play havoc with human society during the modern period. For example, it is possible that microbiological barriers to the exercise of power, equivalent to malaria but more virulent, could have halted the western invasion of the periphery in its tracks. The first intrepid Portuguese adventurers who sailed into African waters could have contracted a deadly retrovirus, a more communicable version of AIDS, that would have stopped the opening of the new trade route to Asia before it even began. Columbus, too, and the first waves of settlers in the New World might have encountered diseases that decimated them in the same way that indigenous local populations were affected by measles and other Western childhood diseases. Yet nothing of the kind happened, a coincidence that underlines the intuition that history has a destiny. Microbes did far less to impede the consolidation of power in the modern period than to facilitate it. Western troops and colonists at the periphery often found that the technological advantages that allowed them to project power were underscored by microbiological ones. Westerners were armed with unseen biological weapons, their relative immunity to childhood diseases that frequently devastated native peoples. This gave voyagers from the West a distinct advantage that their antagonists from less densely settled regions lacked. As events unfolded, the disease transfer was almost entirely in one direction, from Europe outward. There was no equivalent transfer of disease in the other direction, from the periphery to the core. As a possible counterexample, some have claimed that Western explorers imported syphilis from the New World to Europe. This is arguable. If true, however, it did not prove to be a significant barrier to the exercise of power. The major impact of syphilis was to shift sexual mores in the West. From the end of the 15th century to the last quarter of the 20th, the impact of microbes on industrial society was ever more benign. Notwithstanding the personal tragedies and unhappiness caused by outbreaks of tuberculosis, polio, and flu, no new diseases emerged in the modern period that even approached the megapolitical impact of the Antonine plagues or the Black Death. Improving public health and the advent of vaccinations and antidotes generally reduced the importance of infectious microbes during the modern period, thereby increasing the relative importance of technology in setting the boundaries where power was exercised. The recent emergence of AIDS and alarms over the potential spread of exotic viruses are hints that the role of microbes may not be altogether as megapolitically benign in the future as it has been over the past 500 years. But when or whether a new plague will infect the world is unknowable. An eruption of microparasites, such as a viral pandemic, 
rather than drastic changes in climate or topography, would more likely disrupt the megapolitical predominance of technology. We have no way of monitoring or anticipating drastic departures from the nature of life on Earth as we have known it. We cross our fingers and assume that the major megapolitical variables in the next millennium will be technological rather than microbiological. If luck continues to side with humanity, technology will continue to grow in prominence as the leading megapolitical variable. It was not always such, however, as a review of the first great megapolitical transformation, the agricultural revolution, clearly shows. <laughs>